0: Good morning. Welcome to Taproot. My name is Sam, and I'll be reading the word for us today. Our passage is Matthew 22 verses 34 through 46, and it will be on the screen. When I finish reading, I will say, "This is the Word of the Lord," as the church will prayerfully respond with, "Speak Lord, your servants here." Matthew 22: 34 through 46. How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Speak, Lord. You may be seated, and let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that you will settle into our hearts um, a knowledge of who you are, that you are who you say. I pray that you will give us receptiveness to hear you as um, to be who you say you are and that we will obey and submit to that declaration of that. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is worthy of all of our love, and I pray that you will grow that love deeply in us as we come to your word today. Be with Mike as he preaches. Um, may his words be clear. May our hearts be receptive to them. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: All right. Well, good morning, family. How are we? Uh, If you're a guest, welcome. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here in Taproot Church. Get to open God's Word this morning, and uh, uh, the other thing is, um, I'm not exactly sure of all the details, but there's uh, there's a a little boy. He's not little, but Kale. His name is Kale, and Kale's 10 or 11. Anyways, he was hospitalized this morning, last night. He's been released, but he was in the hospital for a while with just some uh, issues with uh, his oxygen levels being really low, and just um, he has some heart things, and so just really concerning for the family. And so I just want to invite you all to be keeping him in your prayers. His name is Kale sidecheck uh, His uh, dad is Kevin, and mom is Rebecca. And uh, actually, I just want to take a moment and uh, just pray for, for Kale and the family. Uh, Father, we thank you that we can come to you and and I thank you that you are um, you're the one who gives life. And uh, Lord, I pray for the SideCheck family and just uh, as they are uh, just feeling um, yeah, just, the, the, just the overwhelming emotions that come with uh, having a, a child who's not feeling well. Uh, uh, Lord, I pray that you just comfort them. And uh, we just pray for wisdom, for, for doctors, clarity for them to know uh, what might be happening in his little body. And uh, we just pray for healing for him and rest, um, and that today would just be filled with uh, your peace and your love, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so just, uh, yeah, keep them in your prayers. Um, All right, let's do this. We're getting back in the Gospel of Matthew. We had uh, Dr. Stephen Wellum was here last week. Everyone, Everyone enjoy that. It's really good, I thought. So he had, uh, that, that sermon is up on our, our website. He also had a, a teaching that he did in the afternoon uh, where he kind of worked through some of the differences between um, dispensational and covenant theology, and then that included a, a Q&A. And so if you're interested in that, I'd encourage you to go give it a listen. I haven't heard it yet. I was bummed to miss, but I'm sure it was absolutely intriguing. Um, We're continuing our way here, of course, through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, this morning we're in a pretty big text, yeah? If Jesus Jesus has asked the question, what's the greatest command, and then he gives an answer, we should probably listen to what he says. (laughs) So it tells us this is a pretty important one, because this is what Jesus teaches us is, is the greatest of all commands in Scripture, it's interesting, as, as, as we think through this, this command of loving God and loving neighbor, of course, what we tend to center in on, uh, our thoughts or our attention focuses in on this concept of love, and uh, there's so much that we could possibly say about love, right? I don't, I don't have any statistics, but I would venture to bet that there is more content on love than just about anything, uh, more movies, more books, more songs, right? All you need is love. Yes, thank you, Phil. I was hoping for at least one. <laughs> and that 's just of course, popular culture. If we were to turn to scripture or if we were to, to think of think to ourselves what is what is most important, I would venture to say that. We would probably say love in some way, shape, or form, and I would be willing to bet that for most of us, our our, our favorite, most memorized chapters and verses are those that have to do with love. And so, just a, a couple of examples. Of course, First John chapter four, verse sixteen. What does it say? I think it's four, somewhere. It just says, "God is love." Right, it was an easy one, huh? <laughs> yeah, God is love. We're all familiar with that. We're, of course, familiar with John 3, 16. Right? For God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. Right? Uh, the most famous, of course, is, well, maybe, you know, it's up there at least, 1 Corinthians 13. Right? It was patient and kind, I was gentle, Right? We have this, this very clear description of love, the way that it describes it at least, but also within 1 Corinthians 13, we just have this reality communicated to us that you can have all sorts of spiritual giftedness, but without love, it's just noise. It's obnoxiousness, right? we, could, we could go on for a long time. The Bible has so much to say about love. But love is interesting. I think it's one of those areas, uh, like politics, we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, where we all think we're right, but we're all at least a little bit wrong. And I think this is especially the case in, in our cultural climate, which, which is this love wins culture. Right? Love, is, love is the solution to anything and everything. Right? Walk out into this world... Ask anyone the question, what do we need most, and you're likely to get some answer in the form of love. The problem with this, though, is that culturally love has no standard other than the very distorted self. And so we we exist in this cultural climate in which love means to let me do what I want to do when I want to do it the way that I want to do it. And any objection to that is unloving. If you, if you object to my view, to my version of love, then you are unloving. And, and of course, the moment I feel that you are a threat to my version of love, I must hate you. I must demonize you. There's no way that we could possibly exist in the same room, and so therefore, my response is to do anything but love you. It's very confusing, very conflicting. Now, we should be careful here because I want to be clear, we don't expect the world to love like disciples of Jesus. I think it's something to always bring clarity to uh, for us as much as we can. I, I think often we, we expect the world to, to live like and to look like followers of Jesus, but that's, that's not the case. We can't have that expectation of the world around us, of people who don't love and follow Jesus. Rather, what we need to do is look inside and, 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 and really assess the reality, the sad reality, that the love of many disciples looks much like the world. Right? And so part of what we need to do is, is we need to assess and we need to first see the log in our own eye before we can point out there and say, oh, you unloving people. I think that's what this text invites us to do, is to see the log in our own eye and pull it out before we point out this back in our brothers or sisters or anyone else's for that matter. And so like I said, this text this morning is a big one. In it, Jesus clearly lays out for us what is of utmost importance for every disciple of Jesus. And I'll, I'll admit, I'll confess, this text is, is challenging because on, on the one hand, it just, is, it just feels so massive. It feels like I should have loads and loads of things to say about it. Like we could be here for hours. We won't be, but we could be. <laughs> because that's the reality on the other hand is at the same time, this text sort of silences us. It causes us to have to, to sit and to ponder and to meditate, to think deeply about what it is that Jesus is saying and to assess whether or not our, our hearts and our lives are really being shaped by the love of God. And so with that, let's, let's look at this text here this morning and see what it is that Jesus has to say. Um, I, don't have, I didn't have an opportunity to get stuff on the screen this week, so it's just me, sorry. Um, and so let's work through this. The first, the first question here that's asked is, which command is the greatest? So let's look at the text, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, um, you could replace that word lawyer with just expert in the law. So it's An expert teacher. This teacher, this expert in the law, asks him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, it's Jesus speaking. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's all we're going to get through today, too, just so you know. We read the rest of it. I'm not going to touch it. So here's, what, here's what's happening. Remember, uh, Jesus is... is he's found himself in this series of arguments, essentially, with the religious leaders in Israel. And, and really, this, this started back in chapter 21 when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and uh, he entered in as, as the king, right? He entered in on, on a, a donkey, and it was kind of, it was just this, this messianic entrance into the city of Jerusalem, and it's the first time in the gospel that Jesus is receiving this praise and adoration as, as Lord and as King. But over and over and over again, what we've seen throughout the gospel of Matthew is that uh, Jesus isn't the king that was expected. Remember, uh, the people were expecting this Messiah to come in and, and overrun uh, Roman rule and, and run it out of town and to establish uh, what they perceived God's kingdom to be on earth. But Jesus came working, teaching, establishing his kingdom for sure, but just differently than what anyone expected. And part of that was his objection to the religious establishment. And so we see that with Jesus over and over and over again throughout the gospel of Matthew, but it's particularly highlighted here in Matthew chapter 21, specifically when he goes into the temple and overturns the table, the money changers, so on and so forth. Jesus continues to expose that the religious leaders are not bearing the fruit that they're intended to bear as those who are supposed to love God and teach the ways of God. And so the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees in particular, have come to Jesus time and time again here in the past little bit of chapter 22 uh, to challenge him and to test him and to do their, their best to trap him. And so they, they ask him these Questions in an attempt to do so, and Jesus just keeps responding back in ways that silence them. He responds in ways that cause them to be to marvel, to be in awe at who he is and, and what he's teaching. And so, this is, this is the same thing that's happening here. Jesus has just silenced the Sadducees, and the sense of the text here is that there's a sense of pride for the Pharisees because Jesus has just silenced the Sadducees. In a sense, they're coming to Jesus, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus now kind of like as a, yeah, he puts you in your place. But now they come again with a question. Right? They come, as we see, one final time in order to test Jesus or to try to trap him. And so the question that we have to ask is, what's the trap here? What's the trap? Okay. Well, here's what's going on. We need to understand that the law... Uh, better understood to be the instruction. That word law, don't don't read it as like civil law. Read it as instructions from God's word or teachings from God's word. Uh, This was central to the life of the people of Israel. There was, when 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 they heard, when they understood law or instruction, it wasn't a negative to them. I think that's an important thing for us to understand because often we hear law or instruction and our first, our first, the first connotation there for us is not usually positive. It's like negative or to be rebelled against in some way, shape, or form. But God's people treasured the law. We see this in, in passages such as Psalm 1, which declares that there's, there's blessing for the person who meditates day and night on the law or the instructions of the Lord, That person is a a strong person who is like a tree that's planted by streams of water, and that person is not blown around uh, by everything around them. So there's this delight to meditate on the instructions of the Lord. Uh, Psalm 19 19 is the same. just kind of declares how uh, much of a treasure God's instructions are to the people. And then also Psalm 119, which is, I think, what, 176 verses? Of, of praise and adoration of God's law, God's instructions. Right? I think we go to a text like Psalm 119 and it's just so so foreign to us because there's just this declaration of, of love for the law. Right? And so this was, this was central to the people of Israel, that they truly delighted in the law. They, they wanted to know it and they wanted to obey it. The question is, why? Like, to what what degree did they want to know the law, and to to what degree did they want to obey the law or instructions of God? And so they ask this question regarding the law. They go to Scripture. And what happens here is is the question asked reveals a standard practice among rabbis. So uh, you you can imagine this scene, right? The experts in the law... Uh, had counted, they, imagine that they just spent their time just pouring over Scripture, the Old Testament, just pouring over it. And they're in their little group, and what they spend their time doing is just counting. How many laws are there? Are there? Doesn't that sound like fun? Could you imagine just a day working Genesis through Deuteronomy, counting the laws? Sounds invigorating. <laughs> well, this is what the experts of the law would do. And this is this is a historical practice. And, and what they did is they had counted out around 613 instructions in the Torah. 613. And what they would do is they would debate about which ones were most important which ones mattered the most, which ones were the greatest. And so this would actually have been a regular conversation among the experts in the law regarding the law, is which one is the greatest. And it's interesting because on the one hand, what they understood is also what we understand, and it's that all the laws are God's laws. And so there is no hierarchy of laws that's part of the trick. That's part of the trap. See, if they, can, if they can get Jesus to pin down something specific, then he's also at the same time neglecting something else. And so therefore, they've, they've trapped him. And they, in their opinion, have the ability to, to deem him as someone who doesn't regard God's instructions the way that the Messiah the king of Israel ought to regard God's instructions. One commentator says this about the commands. He says, quote, all of God's commandments are equally great since whatever God commands is great, no matter how insignificant it may be to us. Therefore, there, there is no distinction, in a sense, among the laws. But on the other hand, it was and is obvious that there are some laws that are, are weightier, if you will, than others. So the way that you would see this exemplified in the Old Testament, for example, would be um, it would be understood, like outright understood, that a command like do not murder carries maybe more weight and more significance than don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Like, whoa, where'd that come from? <laughs> right? They're both instructions. We're not going to try to parse out the second one. But anyways... Just know this, they're both instructions given in the law of the Lord, but obviously one has a bit more significance to it than another, right? And so this is, this is the argument that they're having, right? And, and it, you know, we participate in these same kinds of arguments today. I think it goes like this, though. Well, isn't all sin equal before God? Well, in a sense, Sure. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's, a, there's just a general encompassing of sin regardless of what it is. But at the same time, we know too that there are, are some sins that bear more weight, more significance, more impact on our lives personally and on the community around us than others do. And so we, we, we wrestle with the same questions and the same arguments. Okay. But here, here's, here's what's happening. The question that's asked by the Pharisees, what it does is it ultimately reveals the priority in their lives, yet also it reveals a misunderstanding of the priority in their lives. So, well, What do I mean by this? Well, what, what, what they're doing, what it seems like they're doing at least, is there's a conflation of a love for God's law and a love for God as if they are the same. And so they're, they're bringing these together in, in ways, and also distinguishing them in ways that ought not to be. Right? Now, while there should be a prioritization of God's law, what we have to understand is that the motive must be love for God. Right? And this is, this is something that the religious leaders continued to misunderstand and to abuse Rather than, rather than their love for God being their motive for learning and for teaching the law, it was this repeated emphasis on um, just to focus on themselves, selves and for their own fame and their own recognition and their own power and their own authority, which is what Jesus continually rebukes here in these chapters, And so what's happened here is they've emphasized the letter of the law over love for God, which has resulted in neither love for God or others. Right. And so it, it causes us to have to stop and, and ask ourselves, when we question God, when we question Jesus, what are those questions for? Like, Where, are we, where do we place ourselves within that? Jerome was a church father, I think from the 300s, and uh, he said this in regards to this text. He said, quote, thus, whoever knows something and then asks a question not from a desire to learn, but from a zeal to know whether the one asked really knows, that person has put oneself in the likeness of Pharisees and behaves not as a disciple or a student, but as a tempter. See, so the motive of the questions that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are are asking are just that, they're not not seeking to learn anything. They're They're not seeking to actually know God. They're not seeking to actually be disciples of the way of Jesus. They're seeking to tempt him. They're seeking to trap him. And so the results of this were an entire culture that God was ultimately Opposed to. Now, we're going to spend the next several weeks in Matthew chapter 23 uh, detailing this out, because in Matthew chapter 23, we have this, this series of, of woes that Jesus pronounces over the people of Israel, and particularly over the religious leaders. And we see Jesus kind of enact one of his final prophetic stances against the people, in hopes of drawing them back to true worship of of God. But suffice to say, at this point, we see again that the Pharisees are not interested in obeying Jesus. They're not not interested in Jesus as their Lord and King. They're interested in solely doing away with Him. So how does Jesus respond? How does He respond? Well, I suppose that we can start with the fact that Jesus' response is genius as always. Jesus is always calculated. Jesus is always specific in his responses. And what we see in his response is that it is simultaneously familiar and unique. So what do we mean by this? Well, notice what Jesus does. Here's here's how it's familiar. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. What's Jesus doing? Yeah, he's quoting scripture. He's quoting their scripture. Right? And and not only is he quoting their scripture, he's quoting an incredibly important scripture. Right? This is this is Deuteronomy chapter six. Verse four specifically, uh, but particularly this section, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four through nine, and I'm, I'm going to read it for us here this morning. It's called the Great Shema, the Great Shema. And listen to, to what the Great Shema says in verse four, Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine. It says this, hear, O Israel, or listen, Israel. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this is, this is the great Shema that Jesus quotes. And obviously, he doesn't quote it in full, but it would have been known. It would have been understood what he was saying. And so this was an important text to his audience, Right? It was so important, in fact, that it was, it was recited twice daily by every person in Israel. When they, when they awoke in the morning, this is what was on their lips. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then before they would go to bed, this is what was on their lips. They prioritized this. They emphasized this. They recited this daily. Jesus would have done this same practice, right? Jesus would have said this morning and night for the entirety of his life. And so this is, this is the familiarity of this, these words, this law. But it's also unique, right? And it's unique because Jesus is seemingly the first to bring the love of neighbor into this in the way that he does. Now, it wasn't it wasn't foreign to experts in the law or to the people of Israel to, to, to emphasize a love for neighbor, but seemingly the love of neighbor hadn't been put with the love of God in the way that Jesus does it. And so Jesus grabs from Leviticus 19 and brings these together and makes this unique for them to hear. And so a few things for us to highlight from, from this response here from Jesus. first is this, is the phrase, hear, O Israel, or listen, Israel, is more than hearing with our ears. It's, it's more than uh, just hearing the words. Okay? The idea of hear or, or listen, Israel, it's the idea of paying attention. It's, it's like an alert, like, like, there's authority. Listen, Israel. Hear, O Israel. The intent is to focus. More specifically, it's to respond with behavior and action. The idea is, is of observation and doing. We see this elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew as well. So in Matthew chapter 13, uh, it's the par- you have the parable of the sower, And the parable of the sower references this phrase, to hear, and it's the same concept. It's not just to hear something with our ears and then be like, oh, that was nice. It's to hear with the intent of doing it. Uh, The other other specific spot would be in Matthew chapter 28, what we know as the Great Commission, when Jesus Tells his disciples to go and make disciples. His specific instruction is to teach them to observe. That word observe is to obey. It's to, it's to do. It's to to hear with the intent of obeying what Jesus has taught. And so what we have here is just this picture of discipleship. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. It's not just an incorporation into some Sunday thing. It's an entire way of life. It is is learning how to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. It's following him with everything. This is what Jesus is alerting us to here. Second, also unique here, Jesus says to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Mind is what's unique there. I don't know if anyone noticed that the word was changed, right? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what was it? Strength, right? We'll talk about that again or here in just a minute, but... For now, what we need to understand is this, is that to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind is not a compartmentalized concept. It's not like, oh, here's how I, here's how I love God with my heart or my, what we would think is our emotions. Uh, here's, here's how I love God with my soul, kind of like the deepest parts of our being, and here's how I love God with my intellect. The idea of the text, rather, is just simply to love God with our whole being, our whole existence. It's a, it's a whole... Body experience—that's what Jesus wants us to understand. It's—it's—it's everything that we have is is directed toward God. Now, on this, we need to remember that the biblical concept of heart is not our concept of heart. It's not the organ that's beating inside of our chest. Rather, it's the core of our emotions. It's. uh, it's it's the, our motivation structure i think if we are to understand the heart biblically we need to understand it more as like the gut it's the center of our existence it's what it's what makes us it's what motivates us it compels us whatever it is that's what jesus is talking about and so he's he's teaching us to to love to love god primarily is to to love him with the core of our being with all that we have Third, okay, now here's, here's where we get to the switch. In, in Matthew, Matthew records Jesus substituting strength with mind. Now, um, so this is, this, is what, this is interesting. I don't know, I just found this to be interesting among the, the Gospels. Um, Matthew and Mark treat this scene differently. It's the same thing, but it's treated differently. So Mark, Mark is interesting. Mark is most likely the first gospel that was written. And Matthew is most likely using a lot of Mark's material. Right? Um, but in the gospel of Mark, uh, this expert is referred to as a scribe. And the account in the gospel of Mark is really positive. Right? Jesus' response in the gospel of Mark is that this person is not far from the kingdom of heaven, is what he says. What's interesting, though, is in Luke, it's, it's entirely different. Right? In Luke, you have this expert asking Jesus this question, and then, then what happens in Luke? Does anyone know what happens in Luke? It's in Luke chapter 10. Yeah, he tries to justify himself, because it, uh, Jesus says this, he tells them what the greatest command is, and then the response from the expert in the law is, who then is my neighbor? And Jesus' illustration is then the parable of the Good Samaritan, which was utterly scandalous. Because the picture that we get in Luke chapter 10 of the person who loves God and loves neighbor is the Samaritan, which was unfathomable for Israel. They couldn't comprehend that, right? And so... It's just interesting distinctions that we have in, in the Gospels. Uh, it tells us that they're, they're written for specific purposes to specific audiences. And Matthew indeed is doing that. Matthew wants to highlight something. From what I read, the commentaries I read, most of them believe that Matthew's Gospel has a very high view of the intellect, which is why Matthew replaces strength with mind. Because Matthew comes to this over and over and over again, right? Matthew. Matthew seems to be, more than any of the gospel writers, kind of enthralled with the intellect of Jesus and the genius of Jesus. It's why he tells us things like, they walk away marveled, they walk away amazed, or they walk away, in this case, silenced, never to come and ask Jesus a question again because they finally learned their lesson, right? And, and, and we, need to, we need to embrace that, like, Jesus actually was the smartest man who ever lived. He actually was a genius. He actually was engaged with his thinking. And I think this is just an incredibly important implication for us, right? That we need to learn how to think well as disciples of Jesus. That, That our mind is included in this whole person Loving of God. And I'll just be honest, man. In the church world that I grew up in, a lot of Christians threw out the mind and have settled for some watered down, weak version of discipleship to Jesus. Now, I might, I might personally lean toward an overemphasis of the intellectual side of things. I understand that. But I also believe it's incredibly intellectually compelling. Right? And we're invited into that. We're, furthermore, to, to be a disciple of Jesus is to learn how to think well. It is to learn how to think Christianly about the world. And, and to engage God in all of that. And that's why Matthew seems to emphasize this. Right? Um, the fourth thing that we need to see from Jesus' response is uh, he, says, he says that a second is like it. So look at verse 39. All right, so you have the, this is the great and first commandment. Verse 39 and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he, what he's getting at is that everything kind of has its culmination in what Jesus is saying here. So he's, he's, not, he's not doing away with any of the 613 instructions that are given in Scripture. Rather, he's saying they all find their fulfillment, their culmination in these two. Now, what he's also saying is this, is the phrase, a second is like it, it literally just means sameness or equality, and so, what Jesus wants to, to make distinct and clear here is that these are equal in importance. To love God and love neighbor is not like, well, love God and love neighbor. They are, they are of equal value, equal importance for us to understand. Brunner, in his commentary, puts it like this He says, quote, The first is first, and the second is second." Genius, right? But the second is equally as important as the first. Only together in a nurturing mutuality is either love kept pure. Siri found this on the web. Mine does it all the time too, it's okay. Okay, a neighbor minimizing love of, yeah, okay, a neighbor minimizing love of neighbor, oh my gosh, I missed, I missed up something here, guys. Here we go. A neighbor minimizing love of God is as reprehensible to the prophetic Jesus as a God minimizing love of neighbor is impossible for the pastoral Jesus. In other words, a love for God that diminishes the neighbor is not a love for God. Okay. And a love for neighbor that diminishes love for God is neither. Neither. And so these are of, of equal value and importance to Jesus. Okay. So, what then? What then are the implications of this? What does all of this mean? How do we? How do we? What do we do with this text? Losing my voice this morning. Um, I think I have three or four more thoughts for us on this. First. What are the implications? First, love, whatever it is, is rooted in God. Love, whatever it is, is rooted in God. So the obvious question that we are we're we're trying to figure out then is what is love? Right, age old question. I remember asking this question when I was a little kid. Like. It's one of those like, weird memories I have as a, as a little child, is very specifically asking my mom, what is love? I don't remember her answer, so anyways. I remember asking the question, though. But if we're going to ask what love is, what we have to do, of course, is go to Scripture. And what does Scripture tell us? Well, it tells us that God is love. Well, that leads us to another question. If God is love, What is that? Who, who, who then is God? Well, here, here's, here's where my train of thinking went. When God is revealed in Exodus chapter three, right, this is foundational, he, re- he reveals himself as Yahweh. Right? In other words, he gives to Moses his personal self. Right? And so the first picture that we get of God The God of the Bible, of Yahweh, is this personal reality, That he's not distant, he's not just frustrated or angry waiting on us to try to get things right. Rather, he is a personal God who pursues his people, and he reveals that personal reality to his people. And so when, when he tells Moses to go back and tell the people about himself, he reveals his personal self gives his his personal name. But that's not all that we see. Later on in the book of Exodus, uh, we talked about this a little bit last week after Dr. Wellam's uh, lecture, sermon talk thing. Um, In Exodus chapter 34, right, Moses says that he wants to see God, but that he can't see God. He can't see God face to face, otherwise he'll die. Okay. And so God hides him in the rock, that whole thing. Moses sees the back side of God, whatever that means. It was glorious. <laughs> and then the next chapter, it's a continuation of chapter 32-33, this whole scene here. God is revealed to Moses, and when God is revealed to Moses, how is God revealed? What's well, his character, right? We're told that God is compassionate or that he's merciful. We're told that he's merciful, he's gracious, he's patient, and he's steadfast in his love. Okay? So I, I don't know how else to define love aside from that. If we're to understand what love is biblically, then we have to ask, well, who is God? Because it says that God is love. And when God is revealed, he's revealed as personal, that is close and not distant. And he's revealed as merciful, gracious, patient, and steadfast in his love. It's incredible. So that's that's the foundation for all of this. Any any love that we're to have that's toward God or any love that we're gonna have that's toward anyone else is rooted in this reality. And this is freeing, right? Like, I don't, I don't know where all of you are at this morning in your closeness with God or your distance from God, right? Some of you might just be here questioning God. I'm sure that some of you are here and your perspective of God is that he's just waiting for you to mess up again and it's it, right? Or or maybe that's just your your perspective is that God is just kind of like some cosmic negative dad always waiting to just beat up on his children because they can just never do enough, never add up, never good enough. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not how God reveals himself. Scott McKnight, he, uh, he actually he wrote a book called The Jesus Creed. And what he calls The Jesus Creed is, is this, this text. Uh, it's the, the Shema combined with uh, Leviticus, the Leviticus command to love your neighbor. And here, here's what he says about this. He says, quote, The Jesus Creed begins with love, God. Love, for it to work at all requires truth-telling. Telling this truth to God is how we genuinely love Yahweh, and it creates a new beginning in life. Our yes to God is, in the words of theologian Dietrich von Hildebrand, the primal word and cannot be spoken too clearly, too wakefully, and too explicitly. So Here's what this is saying. This, this is the gospel. This is the good news is that God has first loved us, right? And that there is, there is nothing that you can do or say in Christ that will shock God, right? You, you can't be, we can't be too far gone, too messed up. The gospel message is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so there's nothing that's shocking to God. He's not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of your failures. We don't need to get stuff right before we get God. Rather, he pursues us in our mess. Remember, that's, that's the comfort that was given to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 34 who had just created a golden calf to worship. Like, how nonsensical does that get? It's really nonsensical. Yet we do that all the time. We just have different looking golden calves. Right? But, but the way that God reveals himself to his people is as a God who loves golden calf worshipers. So this is who God is, right? But now the overall implication of this love, because because of God's pursuit for us, of us, the implication, the response then, is a delight to obey God. I was talking with my my wife about this last night. She was reading Romans six. Right, where Paul, Paul's kind of arguing with the Romans and their question is like, man, the grace of Jesus is just incredible. Should we continue in sin then that grace may abound? What's Paul's response? No. By no means. Because we're no longer slaves to sin. But we're, we're slaves, we're, we're servants to God. We, we've, been, we've been transferred, we've been transformed from an old life to a new life. The old life was one that delighted in rebelling against God. The new life is one that delights to obey him. And this becomes our, our delight. You see, as disciples of Jesus, we don't need to be afraid of the commands. Right? We don't need to be afraid for one thing because Jesus perfectly did all of them in our place the ridiculous implication of the gospel is that God the Father sees us as he sees Christ. Like, that's justification. We have been made right. We have been made sinless. Spotless before the Father. Which is an, just, it's an entirely new motive for us. It's an entirely new motive for obedience. This is, this is how it's put in, in second, or sorry, first John. In First John chapter two, verses uh, three through six, listen to what it says, "By this, we know that we have come to know him." Okay, so the, the whole letter of First John, the whole purpose of it is assurance. John wants the people who he's writing to, to have assurance of who they are in Christ. And so over and over again, he tells them how to know. And this is what he's saying. Here's how you know. We have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Right? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides or remains in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see, for for the apostle John, who's writing this letter, who who experienced life with Jesus, it's clear, he says, here's how we know that we have a love for God, that, that we actually obey him, that there's actually a delight to obey what he teaches us. And we do so not because we think that we have to prove ourselves or because we have anything to earn, but because it's finished. So there's just this delightful obedience to the way of Jesus. That's all rooted in this love for God. The second implication is this, is that love of God is inextricably connected with love of neighbor. In other words, love of God alone is, is not sufficient. To, to love God only has a tendency to lead to an unhealthy fanaticism or just an outright arrogance or meanness. Right? Because, because no one else is ever good enough. No one else will ever measure up. And so love of God must and is always accompanied, rightly so, in Scripture, by a love for neighbor. Right? And so the point here that Jesus makes is this, is that the gospel always implies a social component. Right? So the implications, so the gospel is the good news that Jesus is king that he's ruling and reigning, right? This, this orients our vertical relationship with the Father, but it also reorients our horizontal relationships with one another. It has to. If it doesn't, it's incomplete. If, if our gospel is not social, it is not a gospel. Right? And I know that that, that, like, that sits really uneasy with some of you. Because yeah I won't get into it too much because we have we have a tendency to kind of be antisocial when it comes to the gospel or or there's kind of this like well we just need to preach the gospel and the rest will take care of itself but what then do we do with neighbor love So the implication is both vertical and horizontal. They're inextricably connected. You can't have one without the other. To love God but to neglect the people right around us is not loving God. It's just not. Here's what, again, John says in verses 7 7 through 11. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, But an old commandment that you had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See what, see what John does there? See, he's, he's just distilled, um, or maybe not distilled, he's expounded upon the teaching of Jesus. He's expounded on, on this great command of loving God, which, which leads to this love for neighbor. And he just says it plainly. He says, if we, if we hate our neighbor, then we don't love God. Because those are, those are incompatible realities. Right? Now again, then we might ask, you know, maybe not to justify ourselves, but we might ask, well, who is our neighbor? <laughs> and the most simple and basic answer is just those around us. Like, it's, it's, it's literally your, your physical next-door neighbor. And Lord knows, neighbors are weird, right? <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> but it's also just the people that we interact with on a day-in and day-out basis. It's, it's the people who God brings into our presence without us even having to do anything. And we, we love them. We show them mercy. We show them grace. We show them compassion. We show them patience. We show them the characteristics of God. Right? See, here's, here's the, the, the uh, I think, where this works itself out. The, the ultimate implication is that we are, we are, as disciples of Jesus, we are opposed to anything that dehumanizes people. Right? That's, that's our, our posture, that's why we want to, to do things like help within the foster system as much as we can. Because we want to engage in areas where, where people are dehumanized. That's why we've opened a warming center. It's interesting, the various comments that come in from opening a warming center in Twin Falls. <laughs> Many of them are good. A lot are negative, though.? Because right? you have this kind of like, this mentality of like, well, they deserve it. Or they got themselves into the mess. They need to get themselves out. Well, it might be more complicated. Furthermore, it's not, it's not our job to judge that. We've actually just been called to love people where they're at. Regardless of how they may have gotten there. And so if that means opening a door so they can get warm, as long as our furnaces are working, <sighs> then so be it. Right? That's neighbor love. I also want to say this, Um, love for God and neighbor is not easy or natural. It doesn't just happen. It's not just like, oh, I believe in Jesus, now poof. It's just like, oh, I love God and love neighbor. Wow, it's amazing. It requires discipline. It requires intentionality. It must be cultivated. And in his book, uh, The Jesus Creed, actually, one of the, the things that Scott McKnight Suggests is that we too would partake in reciting the Shema or the Jesus Creed on a regular basis. That, that we would do so in such a way that it just kind of gets ingrained into our being. That we would that we would pray it. And that it wouldn't just be something that we say, but that, that we would ask God to, to root it and sink it deeply down into our core that we would be a people who love God and love neighbor. Final implication is this, is that God's love for us invites us to love ourselves. God's love for us is an invitation to love ourselves. Notice what Jesus says about neighbor love. How does he say to do it? To love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we, we bristle at that. Actually, most commentators just ignore this we are like, we're like we are we don't are going to we don't know how to handle this because we are under the illusion that we're really good at loving ourselves right here's here's the reality though i think our culture is incredibly self-hating
0: right
1: there is there is this steady barrage that we face on a daily basis through through the internet through social media that's constantly telling us that we're not good enough and that's constantly telling us that we need to do more to be good enough. And it, like it's not leading to health. There is more depression, anxiety, so on and so forth in our culture than, than any time in history. Right? And that's not, that's not where Loving yourself well would lead you. Right? See, and this is just another aspect of, uh, of the implications of, of the good news of Jesus is that it, it actually frees us to love ourselves the way that God loves us. Right? Because here's, here's what the gospel does the, guy, the gospel simultaneously tells us that we're more wicked, more sinful than we would ever dare to imagine. But that in Christ, we're also more loved than we ever dared to hope. Right? And and the, the implication of that then is, is a, a a posture of receiving God's love. And it's, it's, it's knowing and it's an embracing that like, he actually delights in us as his children. That he actually declares us to be beloved sons and daughters.
0: Right?
1: We'll end with this. Uh, Bruner, he says this to kind of summarize these commands. He says, quote, The greatest kind of commandment in the whole Bible is broken down into two kinds and into two commands. Love the God who loves you and cherish the person who meets you. These are liberating. We carry around much unnecessary guilt because there are so many things that we are told we should do, told by the church, by the world, and by our own conscience. But Jesus' double love command teaches us to attend to these two commands with all that we are, see where they take us each day, and relax. Attend to these two commands, see where they take us each day, and relax. Because we have a good God who is sovereign, who has given us his Son, who has defeated Satan, sin, and death, is reigning as Lord and King, and who loves us. Right? And the invitation then is, is that we get to be aware of who and what God has placed right in front of us. And then, and then ask, is our presence increasingly just exuding the presence and the love of Christ? That's what it is to be a disciple. I think that's what Jesus is teaching here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us in Scripture. I pray that we would delight in your love, that we would mature and grow in our love for you and our love for neighbor. Um, May we be a people who who just display all around us the presence and love of Jesus Um, to the hurting, to the poor, to the marginalized to our literal neighbor, to those who we run in on a day-in and day-out basis. Enable us to be a loving people. Thank you, Jesus, for your finished work. Thank you, God, that you have loved us. It's in your good name that we pray, amen.